0: Welcome back to our series, The Problem of God, where we deal with some of the most difficult questions about the Christian faith. Today, we are gonna talk about the problem of the Bible. But first, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would open up our hearts to receive what you have said in your word and what you have instructed us to do in response to what we hear. God, I pray for every person listening today that they would be quickened in their spirit by your Holy Spirit to receive what thus saith the word of God and receive what you would have for them today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Written down centuries ago, the greatest story ever told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. A story about a beautiful and eternal creator, complete in himself, but so full of love that he made creatures to enjoy relationships with him. So God created human beings in his own image. This infinite being took eternity and wove it into tangible strands of earth. But his creation rebelled. Humans didn't think they needed him and tried to go their own way disrupting the original design of joyful unity with their Creator. In spite of everything, God has never stopped fighting for reunion and restoration. The wages of sin is death, but He knew the way to heal our fractured relationship, for this is how much God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His very best. He gave His Son, Jesus, to save the world from its sins. Now, His children, shameless and forgiven, free, loosened from the bonds of sin. The hero of all heroes. The greatest love story ever told.
0: The problem of the Bible. There's an old uh, child song that we would sing in children's church. Maybe you've sang it too. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. You know, there's also an old adage that says, if the Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it. Well, what happens if that doesn't settle it? What happens when there are times that you consider a prohibition or a commandment or a restraint from the Word of God, and you come up against that with some resistance and realize that just because it's written in here does not always settle it. In fact, sometimes you and I, as Christ followers, we have to wrestle with the hard truths of the Bible we have to get into a place of sacrifice and surrender where we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. So how does that apply to someone who doesn't even have faith? Someone who is really just starting to investigate and wonder Is this thing called Christianity true? Is God real? And does the Bible even have any kind of authority or reliability for my life? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. And here's what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to let some of your doubts just come to full bear because all of us have doubts. We have questions. We have wonderings, things that we're just not sure about. And God's Word and God's uh, people have a way that can reveal truth to us by His Spirit. You know, even the disciples of Jesus wrestled with faith. They wrestled with the scriptures even and with the things that Jesus was teaching at the time. We find in Luke chapter 24 and 25 that Jesus has this very uh, specific encounter with his disciples where he says to them, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe.'" In all that the prophets have spoken. So what he's talking about when he said all the prophets have spoken was he's talking about this section right back here of the Bible. He's talking about the Old Testament. And he said to his disciples that you've had a trouble, you've had time, a hard time maybe believing some of these things, and then Jesus offers them some evidence. And that's what we've been doing in this series, is we've been offering some evidence, some facts based evidence to why we believe what We believe. In verse 26, he picks it up and he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning him. Here's what Jesus was doing, was he went back to the scriptures. When they referred to the scriptures, they were talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And it says that from that point, all the way through Moses and the law, Jesus expounded to them the word and what it taught of him. And so today, I want to talk about the Bible, and I want to talk about the Word of God, Jesus. For you see, in John 1, in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. But verse 14 of John, here it says, And the Word... That's Jesus, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when I say the word of God, what I'm exactly referring to may be cloudy for some, it may be a little bit foggy. I'm referring, yes, to the Bible, of course, but I'm also referring to Jesus, to the rhema word, the the representation of God in flesh word that we have to walk to and walk through this life with us by His Spirit. Allow me for just a moment to challenge you with a picture that may come to your mind when you think of the Bible. I find this in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn there with me, but in Ephesians chapter 6, there is this great picture that we have taught uh, for many years in the church of the armor of God. Maybe you've even perhaps seen a soldier uh, maybe dressed in this full armor, the armor of God. And we get this this wonderful uh, illustration here from the Apostle Paul's writing in Ephesians, where he says this, Finally, my brethren, he gets all the way to the end of his book and and some of the, the most profound teaching to the Christian faith, he says, Finally, my brethren, "'Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. "'Put on the whole armor of God, "'that you may be able to stand "'against the wiles of the devil. "'For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, "'but against principalities, against powers, "'against rulers of darkness of this age, "'against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies.'" You ever wonder sometimes why it just seems like you you, you can go from a good day to a bad day overnight. Just all kinds of things begin to bombard you. They say when it rains, it pours. And so that's because we are in this world having a spiritual battle. We can't always see what it is that is fighting against us. Right now in our our world today, we're fighting against an invisible enemy, a virus that we can't see, but we feel the very real effects of it all around us. Well, Spiritual warfare is much like that. And so we get this picture of an armor. It says, In verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. And now he talks in verse 14 and and, uh, following about this armor. Let's look at this. I want you to challenge a word picture or a picture that you get in your mind. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When you think of the sword of the Spirit, what picture comes into your mind? Okay, maybe a sword, but when it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For many, many years, the, the picture that I came to mind with was that this, the, the Word of God, this is the sword of the Spirit. But I want to challenge you to think about this. Is this really what Paul was talking about as the sword of the Spirit? Well, let's think about it. Righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. Can you see righteousness? Is it something that you can picture? In your mind, or is it something you can tangibly touch? No, it's not tangible. How about your, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Is peace tangible? Well, you can really feel it, but you can't really touch peace. How about faith? The shield of faith, is that something that is tangible or is it more a spiritual reality? Is it something that is not able to be touched or handled? How about the helmet of salvation? Now I can see the effects of someone's salvation, but I really can't see or tangibly touch salvation. All of these things up to this point are invisible. So why then would the sword of the Spirit, being the word of God, be tangible? I believe that in this context, It is the Word of God is an invisible, intangible reality that we live by. Here's what I want to say. The sword of the Spirit is not the Bible in your lap, but it is the Word in your mouth. The sword of the Spirit is when you get a rhema word, not a logos written word, but when you get a rhema word, a spoken word, when you let this word penetrate your heart and mind, then you begin to say what this word says. And when those words come out and they agree and are in alignment with what God says, then those words are powerful. And so I think about the psalmist David. He said this, Your word, O Lord, have I hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. There was something so precious, so revered, so respected about the word of God that the psalmist said, I wanna make sure it gets deep down in here. So even if someone were to confiscate our Bibles, even if someone were to take this away, the word of God is not simply this book. The word of God is the, the Rama word. It is the written, but it is also Jesus, and by his spirit, he penetrates our hearts with the words that he has said. So the Bible, you can see, you can touch. The Word of God, you can't easily handle because the Word of God is not just this written page. It is Jesus himself and by the Holy Spirit is our guide and our teacher. So let me talk about the Bible just a minute here. What the Bible is not. First of all, the Bible is not a history book. There was no camera like the one I'm looking at right now at creation, to, to accurately record and detail everything as it happened in live time. We, we take for granted sometimes the fact that we have cameras and we can record things, and, and recent history seems so well documented, but the Bible is not like that. The Bible is not a history book, although it does tell history. It gives us a very accurate account of history, but it's not intended to be a history book. Let me tell you another thing the Bible is not. The Bible is not going to change the life of a person who does not apply its truths. You can take a book like this, the Holy Bible, and you can put it on your coffee table at home. It's not going to fix your marriage if you never open it up and allow its words to penetrate your heart and to change your life. The Bible is not going to make your business better just simply by setting it on your your, uh, place of employment's uh, coffee table or putting it at your desk at work. The Bible will not change a life, not one until the truths in that book begin to penetrate the heart, the mind, and the life of the individual. The Bible is not the only word of God, because I just explained to you, there is a written word and logos, there is a a spoken word or a a tangible uh, living word through the rhema. And the Bible is not, hear me, the Bible is not going to give you specific answers for your life exactly what to do. The Bible will not tell you where to live. The Bible will not tell you where to go to school. The Bible will not tell you where uh, to to, to, uh, have your business. The Bible will not tell you who to marry. The Bible doesn't give you specifics in that way. But if you will get into this word and let this word get into you, then you will have all the wisdom and knowledge and understanding necessary to navigate all those choices in life. And the Word of God, the Spirit of God, will guide you and direct you into the right path through prayer and supplication to God. Now, let's talk about what the Bible is. The Bible is inspired. The word inspiration means God breathed. And we find that in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspired means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is inspired. It is God breathed. This is the book that God wanted us to have. This is the source of all truth. So the Bible is true and the source of all truth. Regardless of any kind of medical breakthroughs or scientific findings or archeological digs and studies that they find, all that we see is that they are verifying what the Bible has already told us. And so the Bible is the source of all truth. Lastly, the Bible is living and powerful. Hebrews 4 and 12 says it like this, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is alive. And when you begin to read the Word of God and study the Word of God and experience a relationship with Jesus, the Word of God, then you know that living hope. You know that there is something more than just black letters and red letters on a white page, that this book is alive and it brings life to you. And lastly, here's what the Bible is. The Bible is the best-selling book recorded last year and the year before that and the year before that. The Bible is the best-selling book ever in history, and it continues to be every single year. So now let me transition just a minute and say, how did we get the Bible? Let me ask you this. How did we get the Bible? Well, the Bible is comprised of two parts. Over here, we have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and over here, we have The New Covenant. So this part is 39 individual letters or what we call books. It's made up of the Law and the Prophets and some poetry through the Psalms. This other part over here is 27 letters or books and that's called the New Testament. Let me uh, maybe bring it into modern vernacular just a minute. The Old Testament would be for the the Christian kind of like the Magna Carta document is for the American citizen. So the Magna Carta is not an American document. It was about 800 years ago adopted in Great Britain that would kind of outline the structure of government for their nation. Now the Magna Carta Um, even though it's a a great work and it it had a a wonderful start, it really is for two things. It would be like for inspiration, we would want to be inspired by it, and maybe for motivation. And so the Old Testament for you and I can inspire us as we look back and see the stories of struggle, how that time and again people went through turmoil and struggle and hard times, and yet God would come and He would break through and He would rescue His people and He would show them His strong arm of deliverance and his salvation. And then also, we find in the Old Testament that there is a motivation, that we have a motivation to see that God has this story, this plan, marching through all of history to bring about the redemption of His people, His, his chosen people from the Old Testament. It goes all the way through until finally we see the culmination in Jesus Himself in the New Testament, how everything was fulfilled and completed in him. And Jesus said this, I didn't come to do away with the prophets. I didn't come to do away with the old. I came to fulfill it and I came to complete it. And so the New Testament is from Matthew to Revelation, 27 books. It comprises of the gospels and the letters. It's written in Greek and Aramaic, where the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but this is in Greek and Aramaic. And so for a a 21st century mindset, this would be like comparison, maybe not the best comparison, but like the Constitution of the United States. So we borrowed from the Magna Carta in our U.S. Constitution. We, we took uh, some principles from it, but we came up with what we felt to be a better document. The book of Hebrews says that when Jesus arrived on the scene, he established a better covenant, that he was better than the angels. He was better than the Old Testament high priest. He was better in every way, and now we have a better covenant, and we have better promises founded and built upon Jesus. So here's how we came to call all of these two volumes, these 66 individual books, one volume called the Bible. Let me just do a quick walk through history for you. At 30 AD, Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and then... Three days later, he rose from the grave. Well, just about two months after that, the church was born. So we had the very first early church born just a couple months after that in, at Pentecost. So from about 30 AD all the way to about 66 AD, there was some persecution of Christians, but it wasn't really intensified as this new uh, religion, if you want to call it, was taking root in and around uh, the, the Roman Empire of that day. In 66 AD, uh, Vespasian, who is a Roman general, he came to put down a Jewish rebellion in the city of Jerusalem. He wasn't uh, truly successful with all this because it took him a little bit of time to do it, but four years later in 70 AD, his son Titus came and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. Every Jewish person there, they they say that the the bloodbath from that great war and from that 70 AD destruction was just unfathomable. It was something that was beyond comprehension, the kind of persecution that came upon God's people and any Christians in the area as well. Well now that intensified the persecution from 70 AD all the way till Constantine became emperor of Rome in 312 AD. Now this is a quick walk through history. But in 312 AD, uh, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome. There was all kinds of persecution up to that time, and now all of a sudden Christianity was in the highlight reel. It was at the the high point of its existence. And in 388 AD, get this date, 388 AD, Tabiblia was completed. This was the world's first Bible that was put all in one volume. It was both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it was called Tabiblia. And so this was the greatest breakthrough as far as uh, getting the Bible, the Word of God to people, because at that time, uh, they had only had maybe small letters, parchments, or something like that, and now they had one full volume. But you know what? The problem, there was only one of them. It was so large, it was so massive that you couldn't just take it into your home. You couldn't just just walk it into a a synagogue or a church building. It was just one volume. And that lasted until about the time of the printing press when we started seeing uh, Bibles being made in mass numbers and people were getting the word of God in their own language. So 350 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, did we get the Bible? Actually, it was put in the form that you and I know it 350 years later. Now, this is amazing to me. Think about that for the first 350 years of Christianity, the church grew, the church prospered, people were coming to the Lord, people being saved for 350 years, and they didn't even have a Bible at that time. Now, you think about things that we take for granted. I I think that we take for granted the Bible access that we have today. We can easily put our hands up on a Bible. We can pull out our phone or our, our tablet or electronic device, and we have the Bible readily accessible. But for 350 years, the first uh, three centuries of Christianity, they didn't even have it. We take for granted this Bible. I know that I've talked to many people recently, and they, we've taken for granted the, the sense that we can assemble together on Sundays, and we can have a, a worship service together corporately. And now we're, wait, we're looking, and we're wanting to get back, and we're waiting to get back at that because we've taken it for granted. But the church grew nonetheless, even without all of the scriptures. How is that? Because the Word of God is not just simply these words on a page. The Word of God is in our hearts. The Word of God is Jesus and the Spirit of God livening us all the time. Andy Stanley says it like this, Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. The Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible documents something that happened, what's it document? It documents the gospel, the good news, which is that God from time past, eternity past, has been working on a plan to redeem his people. It was found in the culmination through Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. This gospel says that you and I don't have to go to a cross to die for our sins because Jesus did that for us and in our place. He did that for you. And he did that for me, this is the gospel message. So if this book arrived on the world scene 350 years after the founding of the church, there's a very logical question. Can we rely on its accuracy? Uh, While it was compiled uh, 350 years later, it was written very shortly after the death of Jesus, which brings me to the historical reliability of the Bible. When looking at any book of antiquity, or in the case of ancient manuscripts, like we have in the Bible, many of them written on parchment paper, which was like an animal skin, the greater number of manuscripts that you have available, the better that you can compare to detect if there's variations, if there's differences, if there's errors in it. And so the more manuscripts you have, the better off you are. So is this book historically reliable? Well, before I tell you about the reliability of the ancient Bible documents, Let's take a look for a minute at some other well known ancient documents of the secular world. These documents are fully accepted as reliable from world scholars and from the secular world. First one would be Ficatius. He was 95 years old when he died, and he lived between 460 and 365 before Christ. He documented the Greco-Roman culture. Now, there are eight existent copies of his works that are known to the world today. Maybe there are more out there, we just haven't found them, but there's eight documents that have been studied and have been verified as being true. The earliest copy of any of his documents was written 1,300 years after the events happened. But maybe you're not so familiar with him. I wasn't, but you may be familiar with this one. Aristotle's Poetries. Aristotle is very well known. There are five copies worldwide known to exist of Aristotle's Poetries. Each of them were written about 1,400 years after the original events happened. So a long span of time, but by secular standards, very well accepted as authoritative and then Caesar's Gaelic Wars. This tells of life in 58 BC in the Greco-Roman world again, and there are a few copies known today, less than five. They were all documented about a 1,000 years after the events. How about this one, Alexander the Great. His writings were assumed to be fully accurate, again, representing and looking at the Roman Empire of this time, but they were all compiled about 400 years after his death. So let's look at this. Eight documents, five documents, a few documents. None of them were written within 400 years or less of the actual events. So that brings us to the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament. How many manuscripts do we really have to compare to know if this is true? Well, 66,000 manuscripts. Of the Old and New Testament combined, 25,000 just of the New Testament. Now, this is astounding because, by most scholars' assessment, the events written for the New Testament, if we just focus on that, were written between 15 and 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That means the original disciples, the eyewitnesses to his miracles, they were all still there. They were all still present. These letters were being circulated just 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So can we really trust the reliability of something that has been copied thousands of times? Okay, we have 66,000 manuscripts, but can we really trust the reliability of that? What about errors? What about contradictions? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because of all the manuscripts of the Old and New Testament, if you combine them and look at them as a sum total, they would agree at a level, get this, of 95 plus percent. That is how much agreement and unity are within these copies of copies of copies all the way down through the ages. So much more vast information than any of the secular writings of ancient work in all the world, far and away the Bible. We also know this. We know that the Jewish people took such great care to ensure the veracity and trustworthiness of Scripture that when comparing two copies of almost the same passage, even if they were copied more than 500 years apart, they were finding that amazingly these were very, very similar, hardly any variation of all, which begs the question, how did they do that? How do you get to something being so consistent with hundreds of years difference? Well, there is in the Bible a a job that we pass over a lot. It's called a scribe. A scribe was a writer of the Word of God. It was a very high revered position in the church because a scribe's job would be to painstakingly make copies of original manuscripts and never was the scribes' work done alone. They always worked in pairs of three. You see, there was one person that was scribing, and there were two scribes, fellow colleagues, over the shoulder of the one scribe. And if ever there was a a small mistake, a grammatical error, or even a, a small punctuation that was changed, all three scribes would have to initial that change. And if they could not agree upon initialing that change, the entire manuscript was scrapped, and thrown away. Now, can you imagine the pressure of someone standing over your shoulder, watching you as day and night you're writing and you've had this long parchment and you make a mistake? I mean, you don't want to mess up. Uh, Talk about pressure. Recently, our son Carson got his Uh, his learning permit. He just turned 16, but uh, he's had both of his parents many times in the car watching him while he's driving. Now, the pressure mounts when you have a front seat driver and a back seat driver, and so you can imagine the pressure that is on when, when you're operating this automobile, and someone's telling you to do this, and another person's telling you to do that, and you're at the wheel. This is the kind of pressure and more that these scribes felt as they're transcribing the word of God. So they took very careful attention to make sure that it was done right. And I can tell you just as a person who, uh, in, in normal times, I speak probably two to three times on a Sunday morning. And there's never a time, even though I bring the same message to, to both audiences, there's never a time where they come off 100% the same. There's always a little variation. I, I say something different in one service as another, or i emphasize a point differently. That's just human nature. But these scribes, when documenting the Word of God, when copying the Word of God, they took careful attention to make sure that it was exact. So what about the critic that says, I can't believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's full of errors. You know what I would say to them? Why don't you just hand them one and say, show me. Point out one of those contradictions. But okay, maybe that's a little too far. It is a fair question. Bart Erdman is a New Testament scholar and a Bible critic. Not only has he studied the New Testament, but he actually has studied it to the point where he's become a critic of the Bible. Very well known. He claimed to have found 400,000 errors in the Bible. 400,000 errors. Now, many people over reading his summation, seeing his credentials, they've walked away from the faith. They said, see, just what I thought. The Bible's full of errors. Don't need to follow it. Don't need to Uh, look at this again as application for my life. However, Barth's findings did not reference large portions of Scripture that were at odds with each other. Rather, the variances that he found to be contradictions that he noted was maybe one spelling or grammatical error here or there, but over multiple volumes, the same error multiple times. Well, by that standard, if Barth wants to apply that rule, his very first book that he wrote had 16 typos in it. He had 100,000 copies of that book sold. By by his standard, there's 1.6 million typo and errors in his very first book. Now, is that a fair assessment? I just told you that all of these manuscripts agree about 95 plus percent of the time. So yes, the Bible is historically accurate. My last point is the cultural problems. This last area I just want to briefly address because the cultural differences of our world today and the ancient culture of the Bible when it was written are so vast. And so often you and I, when we read the Bible, we bring a 21st century mindset, a Western Christianity mindset to the Bible. And some of the scriptures quickly turn us off. We look at them, we say, oh my goodness, I cannot even understand why something like that would be permitted. Things like polygamy, or slavery, or women being treated as property. Why would the Bible even put something like that in there? Well, let me share this with you. There's a difference between describing something and endorsing something. To describe it just tells about what it's like. I'll give you an example. Uh, I worked in the retail automobile business for 11 years before getting into ministry. Now, I could describe to you many of the practices, some of the best uh, trade secrets of that industry, some of the things that I know that were happening while I was working in that industry. Now, I didn't endorse all of those practices, and we didn't practice many of those things in our local dealership, but I can tell you that the language or the behavior or some of the practices could be described of the entire industry, and not just with the automobile industry. It could be with any industry, the banking industry, even many times the nonprofit industries. So to describe something is simply to talk about what it's it's like. And I think that's, that's a key example to understand that the Bible isn't endorsing everything that it describes. It just tells you what the world was like then. In fact, many times judgment came as a result of the activities of people from the Bible standards, and we see that. Let me just talk about polygamy. God never, not one time, endorsed polygamy. He apparently permitted it for a season and for a time but what we find is every time that that was shown there was great turmoil pain and inner fighting personal heartache and family upheaval every time we saw polygamy take place slavery many people read the word of god and they think i can't understand how old and new testament alike there's so much talk about slavery it never does there seem to be some outright uh, repudiation of it from the scriptures well God's people were slaves in the Old Testament. And so the whole narrative of that, that uh, first section we talked about of the scripture was about one from deliverance of slavery into freedom. It foreshadowed what you and I would experience as Christ followers when we receive freedom in Jesus Christ. But then the New Testament also talks about slavery. Yet if you do some historical study, you'll find that in the Roman Empire, about 85 to 90% of the people were considered slaves as employment. Not the kind of pre-Civil War American slavery that we think of where people were property, but the kind of slavery the New Testament talks about were people who were, were employed as slaves. This was actually a way of employment. Things like housekeepers and teachers and accountants, librarians, even farmers were considered to be slaves, and so it, it colors it just a little bit different when you read it through a historical context and lens. And how about the the treatment of women in the scriptures, and really in ancient culture, women treated as property? Well, I'm going to tell you, the New Testament is of its all of its peers. It is the most dignifying and liberating literature in all the ancient world you're going to find in regards to women. Jesus' ministry, did you know this? Jesus' ministry was partially funded by women. It was to women who first made it to the tomb to discover the risen Lord. It was deacons that were able to serve in the early church, women deacons. In fact, one Phoebe was a deacon of the church of Kentria, and she was the one that was given the task to talk and to proclaim, preach, if you will, the book of Romans that Paul had written and sent as a messenger. He sent Phoebe as the messenger to go and to read or proclaim, or we could say preach, that book to the Romans at, their, at its very first arrival. And so the New Testament is very dignifying of women, very liberate, liberating of, of women. So remember, if you have a problem with the things that you read in the Bible, the Bible was not written to you, the Bible was written for you, and it's profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction. If you were to look at the Bible today and you were to uh, come away with some questions. One of those questions might be, what is the essence of God's word? Well, Jesus would say this, this is according to Mark Clark, reading directly out of, out of this book in the series we're doing, it says this, do you know what the Bible would tell you if you were reading it properly? It would say, of course you failed at these things, keeping the rules and the commandments, Everybody fails at these things. That's why you needed someone to succeed for you. And Jesus says, I am that one. The entire Bible, even the stories of the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for all humanity. This means the rules, they don't have to crush you because they crushed him in your place. They don't have to cause you to run away from God and reject him because Jesus was made distant from God the Father and rejected in your place. Where do we learn about such great news? Well, the Bible. That's where we learn about this. The great church theologian Augustine said this, the Bible is the face of God for us for now. That is the Bible. I'm inviting you to take a step here at the end of our broadcast. a step of faith closer to Jesus. I wonder, maybe you're sitting there in the audience today and you say, I don't know, Joe, that sounds kind of good, but I'm just not fully in. I've got some doubts. And I just want you to pray this prayer. Lord, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. The next category that people I want to talk to are those that say, you know what, I'm in. I'm all in. I've been watching this series. I've been having God deal with me over the last weeks and months, and I want to make a profession of faith. And so simply and humbly, all you need to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin. I accept what Jesus has done for me. I believe in him, and I commit my life to Jesus today. And then maybe... You're in that third category where you're a believer. You just want better answers to the questions that you have in your faith life. You want better answers and a better defense, a better apologetic of how that you can explain the things of God. You wanna go deeper with God and you would just say, here I am, Lord, where you lead, there I'll follow. So whatever category you find yourself in, I wanna us close in prayer. I want you to seek and reach out to God in whatever way you need to. And here's what the Bible tells us, that if we call to him, he'll answer. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Not just this book, but Jesus, the living, the breathing, the resurrected word of God. Whatever category we find ourselves in today, my prayer today, God, is that we would each take a step of faith closer to you, that we would take a step towards that freedom, a step towards that liberation that you provide us in Jesus Christ We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together around this table, studying the word of God. Strengthen us, encourage us, guide us, and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you real soon.